Thanks, Helena. And thanks to the Oxford team as well. And welcome to everyone, whatever time of day or night it happens to be for you. Today, we're going to be exploring how to turn towards difficulty, how to work with difficulty. Times like this can produce lots of discoveries, but also challenges. Out from my daily walk the other day, I saw a woman standing in front of a letterbox outside the village post office. I had a letter to post, so I slowed down and then stood at a distance, waiting for her to finish so I could post my letter. It became clear that she was taking postage stamps one by one from a stamp book and sticking them on envelope after envelope after envelope. It was taking some time. Then she looked up, saw me and apologised, moved away from the letterbox, sat on the low wall nearby and continued to put stamps on her pile of letters. I'm cancelling a wedding, she said. So many disruptions, some small, some larger. And adding to it all the daily news reports of people dying across the world, these are very hard to bear. So any of us may switch off the news for a while, but it's also hard to ignore. So we switch the news on again. And even when it's not so severe, it can be surprisingly challenging especially if we feel we now have the time that we always craved. Why aren't we enjoying it more or using it more? Or if we are enjoying it, we can feel bad about that. We can find our mood tested and under strain. We feel irritable, uneasy and perplexed. So I wanna take a moment now to consider each in our own way what challenges we are noticing, even if we just focus on the last week. And they don't have to be big challenges, but they may be. And there's no need to share this, but if you want to share, then feel free to do so using the chat, uh, which the backup team will turn on for you. Um, and if you're listening to this later, you could write down a challenge on some paper that you've noticed or make a mental note. So taking a moment now and bringing to mind some situation uh, when things didn't go as well for you as you would have liked. Just give a little time for that. So for somebody preparing a virtual funeral, for somebody dealing with late frosts, worrying about precious life cut short, working from home, frustration with technology, struggling with divorce, feeling in limbo, getting no treatment, a noisy neighbor, loss of income and somebody who had to cancel their wedding too. Not able to go to church, worry about business, struggling with my dissertation, with a 12 month old granddaughter admitted to hospital, not seeing children and grandchildren, 
uncertainty, lots of, lots of struggles. And a mother, your mum had a heart attack and couldn't, you couldn't be with her. People keeping their distance or not keeping their distance in the shop, worry about your children. And somebody whose daughter's ill in Bali, trying to support the children whose A-levels have been cancelled. Thank you so much for all of us. So now the, we'll be muted again and the chat will close in a moment. A lot of situations of uncertainty, I think, and a sense of general unease. And I think it's true to say that no matter who we are, or how long we've been practicing meditation, if we've been doing so at all, the current situation can overwhelm us. I want to explore three subtle factors that may go unnoticed underneath the obvious challenges of the sadness and grief and disruption. Three things that can make things worse. And in each case, I want to introduce each of them and then perhaps we'll do a meditation to address at least some of what comes up. And these three things are, first of all, unfamiliarity. The second is a sort of conflict in the conditioning, in our learning and conditioning. And the third is ignoring what we most need. So unfamiliarity, conditioning and ignoring what we most need. So first then, unfamiliarity. Loss of daily routine can be much more devastating than we might have imagined. We like things to be familiar. Psychologists find in their experiments, a preference for the familiar is pretty hardwired. Even at the trivial level, experiments show that random shapes even are preferred if we've seen them before. And this is true even if they're presented to us on a computer below the threshold of awareness, so we don't even know we've seen them. If we've seen them before, even below awareness, and they therefore feel familiar, we like them better. In some ways, it's adaptive to mistrust novelty, at least for a time. If we are parents, we may recall our children going through a phase in which things have to be the same, the bedtime routine, for instance. And actually that might be true of us as well, even now, as our family may well tell us, any of us can be quite disturbed by a change in routine. And you'll know, if you've ever been on retreat, you'll know how fascinating becomes the notice board that gives the day's activities. And all it says is sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, tea. But we look just in case anything is changed. Familiarity is our bedrock, the hidden foundation on which we build our lives from day to day. And this lockdown, both unexpected and unfamiliar, can for many of us shake the foundations of our being. And now you can see it's the lockdown that's becoming familiar, so coming out of it is now the unfamiliar, the difficult, the feared thing, as we see in the UK and might be true of you in the rest of the world as well. So if you found that you've been unsettled, easily upset with yourself or others, 
you can let yourself off the hook, it's utterly understandable. How might the practice of mindfulness help us? Well, if you're new to mindfulness, here's a hint about the most commonly used mindfulness skill. The most commonly used mindfulness skill is shifting attention to the body. Now, there are different ways of doing this. There are two main forms of such a shift, and we'll come to the second later. But the first shift is particularly useful when we're unsettled, for example, by unfamiliarity. It involves shifting attention to some relatively neutral part of the body and making our home here for a while, abiding here so that it becomes familiar. This may be the feet, the seat, the hands or the breath. It's a place that for you right now feels safe. And this is sometimes called grounding practice. It involves focusing the spotlight of attention on one thing. So in this first meditation that we'll do uh, during this session, it will explore, we'll explore grounding. And in this practice, we'll take three steps. Um, we start by noticing what's going on in the mind and body. Then we'll place the spotlight of attention in one place. We'll choose the feet just now. And then third, we'll practice what to do when the mind starts to wander. So now coming to sit, finding a posture that supports your intention to be awake right now. And as we do with Helena, letting your eyes close or lowering your gaze. And the first step is to notice what's going on with you right now. What's the weather pattern like in your mind and body right now? Noticing what feelings may be around. Noticing what thoughts and images might be going through your head. Noticing what sensations there are in the body. So no right or wrong. Some of what you notice may feel pleasant. Other things may feel unpleasant. Simply acknowledging, noticing making space for it all. And then moving to the second step, we're going to let these thoughts and feelings, sensations fade into the background and gather our attention into one place. So when you're ready, gathering your attention and placing it on your feet. Noticing what sensations are here when your attention arrives. Perhaps sensing the contact of the feet on the floor, toes, soles of the feet, the heel, the top of the feet as well. allowing your feet to be the center stage of awareness now. 
So in the next few moments of silence, allowing your attention to rest lightly in this one place, sensing what's here moment by moment as best you can. Now, sooner or later, you'll probably find the mind wanders away, thinking, planning, remembering, daydreaming, whatever. So in the third and last step of this practice, we notice what happens when the mind wanders. And if necessary, we intentionally make some adjustments at this point. So continuing to sit, focusing on the feet. And if you notice the mind has wandered, Noticing if you're tending to be self-critical. You may find you're rushing back to the feet as if you'd been doing something wrong. Instead, when you find the mind has wandered, taking a deliberate pause and before you return to your focus, see if it's possible to thank the mind because it's only doing the best it can, doing what it's been trained to do. And then when you've done that, then gently escorting your attention back to where you had intended it to be, focusing attention again on the feet. So practicing this for a while, focusing on the feet when the mind wanders, not rushing back, but pausing, taking your time, thanking the mind, then bringing attention back. Remembering that an anchor like the feet is always available to you to help you take a pause, whatever's going on, to help stabilize you in, in a more familiar territory in these uncertain times. So opening your eyes now, taking a moment to stretch if you'd like to. Often when we sit for a while, it's, it's quite common for uh, ourselves to get a bit tensed up as we focus on one thing, especially the whole body wants to join in and even your shoulders want to join in. So, so take a moment to perhaps roll the shoulders and, and stretch if you'd like. So why does focusing on one thing help us settle the mind? Because although we speak of attention as a spotlight, after all, that's how it feels, like a spotlight or a torch beam of attention pointing at different things at different times. In fact, we now know that when we focus attention on one thing, 
The brain doesn't only increase activation of the thing we're focusing on, but naturally damps down activation of other things we are not attending to. So that's a natural thing that happens. So focusing on one thing can be very stabilizing because it releases us from having to busy ourselves trying to make other things settle down. So when unfamiliarity unsettles us, we can practice grounding ourselves in this way, gathering our attention, placing it in one place, <clears throat> making that familiar and uh, settling, allowing the mind to do its thing and naturally damp down other parts of the mind, body, brain. Now, the second contributor to unease in these times arises from our conditioning. This is especially true when different aspects of our conditioning come into conflict. I was thinking about this the other day to try to understand what it was that was unsettling us about this situation. And uh, Ivan Pavlov's research came to mind, the history of psychology. He was a towering figure and he helped us understand how powerful conditioning could be, how much of our learning consists of chains of association between stimulus and response. He's most famous, of course, for his experiment showing that dogs who would read, readily salivate for food would learn to salivate even to the bell that predicted that food. That's the conditioning, the making of a new association. Now, others in his lab were using illuminated discs instead of bells. Like the bells, dogs were not at all interested in circular discs in themselves but they certainly were when the disc signaled food. Now in some of those experiments, the disc itself, the circle of the disc, meant food, but a flattened circle shape, an ellipse, meant no food. And it was no problem for the dog to learn which was which. Then something really weird happened. One of his colleagues changed the shape of the ellipse to make it more circular and the circle to flatten it and make it more like an ellipse. And as the shapes came closer together, the dog became deeply distressed. Despite the fact that no apparent harm had been done, it thrashed about, its behavior became disorganized and frantic. And Pavlov was asked to come and see what was happening. And he realized eventually the significance of it for understanding human distress and disorganization. When previously conditioned habits conflict, our mental health and well-being can suffer. And what's more, as you see from that experiment, the reaction can seem out of proportion to the conflict in the stimuli that's causing it. Now, why did I think of Pavlov? I hadn't thought about those experiments for years. Because of the pandemic, it seems we are under restrictions that create subtle collisions between past conditioning and present reality. For example, our homes, which used to be for most of us a place of safety, are now a sort of prison. Our outdoors, which used to be a place of freedom, is now a place of restriction, and in some areas, a place of police observation. And other people, most of whom we used to trust without worrying at all, 
are now a potential risk if they come too close. And these are all examples of conflicts, a sort of dilemma that's not easy to resolve, what psychologists, well, relationship psychologists sometimes called double bind or mixed messages, when the same stimulus evokes different and incompatible responses. And like double binds and mixed messages in relationships, they can bring feelings of powerlessness that are difficult to describe, never mind escape. If we feel powerless, of course, very often we make a response of ruminating about it, brooding about it, because rumination seems to promise a solution. But it only entangles us even more, creating more associations and more conditioned helplessness. So how might mindfulness help? Well, mindfulness itself comes from an ancient wisdom tradition that speaks a lot about the effect of conditioning on humans and sets itself the task of dissolving unhelpful conditioning. And modern psychological science agrees the loosening of conditioned associations is seen as being at the very heart of how mindfulness works. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT for depression, was based on this idea that small changes in sad mood reactivate old chains of associations of worthlessness and failure, which starts up cycles of rumination. Mindfulness practice aimed to help decouple these chains of association. So how can we start to explore such decoupling for ourselves? Well, it takes practice, but the first shift into the body we explored earlier was to intentionally take the focus of attention away from distress by mindfully shifting to a neutral but familiar place. Now we can make a second type of shift of attention into the body. This is different. It involves when a difficulty is around, shifting attention, not away from, but towards wherever in the body the difficulty is showing itself, is manifesting itself. So we're going to be practicing this in a few moments, but a couple of things to say before we do. Whenever you practice turning towards the difficult, it's important to remember that you have choices. There's no need to grit your teeth and continue to try to meditate through discomfort. So if a difficulty arises now or at any time, making a choice. Are you willing to stay a little longer to work with this? And if not, let it go. But even if you are willing, do you have the capacity, the energy right now? If you're too tired or upset, it's fine to leave it for now until there's a time when you feel better able to work with it. The other thing is that it's good to start with small everyday difficulties, perhaps the sort of things, some of which we brought to mind earlier, but the, the, the ones that are, seem easy to deal with rather than the very, very heavy ones. As a colleague of mine once said, not a hundred kilogram weight, but a three kilogram weight or even less, and only if it feels doable for you. And the reason for starting with something small is that it isn't about resolving the biggest problems in your life all at once. It's about beginning to learn a skill, the skill of gradually, gradually turning towards difficult things 
in a way that helps you respond skillfully rather than getting lost in a cascade of reactions. So now let's turn to this meditation. So coming to sit, making yourself comfortable so that your body and your posture represents for you a sense of dignity, of, of being present and letting your eyes close or lowering your gaze. And at the start, reminding yourself where your familiar anchor is. It might be the feet as we practiced earlier, or if you prefer the breath, or choosing your own anchor, knowing that you can shift back to it at any time. And spending a few moments now allowing the anchor to be your center stage, attending to this part of the body that is your anchor. Now at a certain point, deliberately expanding the focus of your awareness to the whole body. The whole body from the crown of the head to the bottom of the feet right out to the surface of the skin, inside the body too. Holding the whole body in awareness now. And while you are sitting, if you notice that your attention keeps being pulled away to painful thoughts or feelings, memories, noticing what's going on in the body when this happens. And if nothing is coming up like that and you want to explore a difficulty, then deliberately bringing to mind some problem something you don't mind staying with for a short while, something you mentioned earlier, thought about earlier, or something else. And whether the difficulty has come by itself or because you've brought it deliberately to mind, once it's here, allowing it to remain on the workbench of the mind, and then shifting your attention into the body and noticing any physical sensations that the difficulty is creating. It might be very obvious or very subtle. An ache or a pain, tearfulness, tightness, the throat or abdomen. If no body sensations occur with the difficulty, choose any sensations there are in the body and practice with these. Spending a moment noticing which sensations are strongest. And then allowing your attention to move right up to or even inside the sensations. The bundle of sensations you've noticed. 
perhaps imagining you could breathe into this region of the body on the in-breath and breathe out from it on the out-breath. Not trying to change the sensations, but to give them space, to sense them clearly, cradling them in awareness as you watch their intensity change and flux from moment to moment. If they're unpleasant, perhaps even saying to yourself, it's, it's okay not to like them. Can I just be open to this? And at any time, if things feel overwhelming or if you find yourself simply brooding on things, coming back to your anchor until you feel ready, either to move back to the difficulty in the body or feeling free to stay with the anchor, or opening your eyes, knowing you have options being kind, no right or wrong. And now letting go of any difficulty and coming back to focus on your anchor, the feet or the breath. Staying here for a few moments. and perhaps congratulating yourself for taking this time to cultivate a sense of openness, even in the midst of these difficulties that are arising. So now, allowing the eyes to open if they've been closed. And maybe taking a moment to stretch. Thank you. It's interesting to ask, why should bringing awareness to a difficulty help at all? When we're finding things challenging, aren't we already acutely aware of our difficulties? So how could being more aware help in any way? It sometimes helps me to recall that when John Kabat-Zinn started teaching mindfulness, his first patients were those with chronic pain and chronic health conditions, people who were well aware of their pain and distress. And yet he asked them within the very first session to focus towards the very center of their problem on their bodies in the body scan. How on earth could this be doing any good? His intuition was that the intense sensations that give rise to chronic pain get stuck by processes we are not aware of. That what happens is that the intense sensations become surrounded by and then tangled up in thoughts and feelings about the pain 
anger, frustration, hopelessness. I hate this. This is ruining my life. My life has been irreversibly damaged. And then these reactions get stuck to the sensations like a limpet to a rock. These reactions are completely understandable, but because they happen automatically and they get so stuck fast, they feel as if they're actually inseparable from the pain itself. Bringing awareness to what is automatic has surprising effects. The thoughts and feelings begin over time to get uncoupled from the physical sensations. When this happens, people find they're able more easily to let go of that extra stuff that has accumulated around the sensations, which had filled up all the space in the room and life becomes more workable. The troubling issues may still be present, but it's as if they occupy a corner of the room, not the whole room. And this became a really good model for what happens in anxiety and in our field of depression too. Thoughts, feelings, body sensations and impulses to act become linked and entangled like the undergrowth of a thick forest. Set fire to one element and the whole forest burns. But bringing awareness to it dissolves the tangles, those associations. They as it were, move away from each other. They can be seen as separate entities. The problem feels more workable. So yes, if there's a negative feeling, which often happens, then it will be here, won't be denied. But now it's as if there's a fire break in the forest. A fire may start, but it's less likely to spread. But if we want the fire break to be maintained, and fire breaks do need to be maintained, there's something else we need to attend to. So now I want to turn to the third element that creates added difficulty for us and what we can do to explore this in our practice. So here's the third thing. We've seen that unfamiliarity and a conflict of conditioning can contribute to a state of mind of restlessness, of distress, grouchiness, irritability. There's a third element that can contribute to our unease under these conditions, and that is this. We become unkind to ourselves. We don't attend to ourselves. We deliberately ignore what we most need. Have you noticed how our unease can make us moody and irritable and how hard it is to be kind? In a mindfulness class, we sometimes read the poem by Rumi that likens being human to being a guest house. It says every morning a new arrival and then welcome and entertain them all. But have you noticed what actually happens? When a mood comes in the front door, kindness leaves by the back door. So how can we encourage kindness to come back in? In the last meditation, we'll be cultivating um, a, a sense of friendliness and kindness towards ourselves. And we'll do it through bringing to mind as best we can those who have been kind to us. So now, coming to sit for our final time this evening. Making yourself comfortable. Just noticing the whole body sitting here letting your eyes close or lowering your gaze. 
And now, at a certain point, bringing to mind someone for whom you feel a sense of friendship from now or from your past, a loved one. It might be a good friend, a parent or grandparent, or your loved one might be a child or grandchild, someone with whom your relationship is not too complicated, someone who loves you. If that feels too hard, you might like to bring to mind a single act of kindness that someone once showed you. You may not have even known the person very well, but they were there for you at some moment of need. A teacher, a neighbour, a friend. So now, bringing the person or the act of kindness into your mind and heart as best you can. and allowing the felt sense of their kindness to surround you. Bathing in the warmth of those moments when this person wanted the best for you, when they really saw you, were attentive to you. And now when you're ready, seeing if it's possible to bring the same sense of well-wishing and kindness and attentiveness to yourself. It may help or it may not to say words or phrases that can help you bring to yourself the same kindness. So if it helps, maybe saying to yourself, may I be safe and well. May I live in peace and with kindness. May I come to know what it is I truly need. Safe and well. Peace, kindness, meeting your deepest needs. It may be hard to be kind towards yourself because of what's going on right now, so feel free to add words to help you. May I be safe and well in the midst of this. May I live in peace and with kindness in the midst of this. May I come to see what it is I most need in the midst of this. 
and allowing a question to drop into your heart and mind. What is the best gift I could give to myself in the current circumstances? What is the best gift I could give to myself? Seeing if it's possible to choose one specific thing you might do in the next day or two that would nourish you. It might be something that simply gives you pleasure, done as an act of kindness to yourself. A special meal, a hot bath. It might be something that gives you a sense of accomplishment, of, of getting things done, of completing a task you'd be meaning to do. Even if it's not particularly pleasurable, good to get it done. But again, done as an act of kindness to yourself. Now letting go of these intentions and coming back to the body as a whole, sitting here, resting in awareness now. Allowing your body to be just as it is. And allowing yourself to be just as you are. Complete and whole. So once again, feel free to move, to stretch. And now we have just a couple of minutes um, uh, spare that you can share if you like using the chat or you can write down on another occasion what things came to mind when you thought, how could I nourish myself? How could I give myself a, a gift over the next couple of days? Something specific and doable. So feel free to um, to share that if you'd like to. So already I've seen chocolate cake mentioned and getting to bed, stop feeling guilty. Showing acceptance to self, sleep, going for a bike ride, more sleep, getting to bed early. Shiatsu massage, finishing your novel, hmm. walking by the Thames, a new game with the child to the kid, muck out a horse's field with love, singing at the top of your voice, see if we can hear you in Wheatley in Oxford, chocolate in your drawer, do other people know about the chocolate in your drawer? Yoga, go to bed on time, spend time with nature, an early night with a good book, sleep soundly, grab a beer, take a day off, start exercising regularly, so rich, so real. <laughs> Relax on a balcony, painting your hair, painting hair. Allowing yourself to stop doing something once in a while. Oh, yeah. 
Isn't it curious how we forget to stop? Somebody says walking in nature, somebody says stop procrastinating, a mindfulness walk in the garden, taking more breaks more often, a trip out in a camper van for a cuppa, yoga, baking a cake, steak tartare, focus, spend more time in the garden, seeing the sea again. Many things, slowing down, stopping. Thank you so much for all these lovely ideas. Thank you, thank you. So as we come to the end of this session, reminding yourself that as well as the obvious distress of the pandemic reported daily on the news, underneath there are subtle but real factors that can make things difficult for any of us, but there are all obviously some things that you are beginning to, to access, to bring to mind that you can do about them. The things that make things difficult are the unfamiliarity, the conflict in conditioning we experience and ignoring what we most need. All of these can drain us of the energy we need to keep going. In the midst of it all, mindfulness offers us a way to navigate the crisis. It's not the only way, there are many ways, but mindfulness can be there for us because it reminds us that we have choices. We can deal with distress by finding familiar ground. We practice that first. Or we may wish to turn towards difficulty if we feel up for it and uh, willing for it by moving in close to where it's revealing itself in the body, our second practice. And in all this, seeing when we're ignoring what we need and cultivating kindness as in our third practice, seeing ourselves through the lens of someone who was or is kind to us, who sees us, who attends to us, and choosing some specific thing to show ourselves the same degree of attention, the same degree of kindness. And all these can help us to see more clearly when we're getting overwhelmed and then take any of these ideas that you're having now and the ideas of others as well. Do them as an experiment, explore them. But in all of this, at these times, forgiving ourselves a little more, letting ourselves off the hook a little more, and in doing so, being in better shape to meet the world, Thank you so much for showing up and I'll hand you back now to Helena who will close our session for us. Back to you, Helena.